Hi, I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business. Welcome to Be Epic, the podcast where we explore excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality, and what those values mean in business, education, and your life today. I have with me today Nathaniel Burke, who is a PhD student in economics here in the Walton College at the University of Arkansas. He is also a Bastiat Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And I know that, Nathaniel, you study behavioral economics and experimental economics and a number of other things like microdevelopment. And I know uh, the Mercatus Center has a history of experimental and behavioral economics. Yeah, um, so George Mason as a whole has a pretty strong history with experimental economics. Vernon Smith, who's kind of regarded to as the father of our, of our subfields, you know, he, he taught there. And actually, if you go to George Mason, um, there's a funny error that was made where they accidentally renamed the garage in his name when they were supposed to rename an entire building in his name. So if you show up, it still says, yeah, it still says the Vernon Smith garage and it's really supposed to be the building. But yeah, so there's a really strong cohort there of behavioral economists that are still doing really good work that I get to, I have the pleasure of working with whenever I get to travel out there. Well, that's great. What is the difference between behavioral economics and experimental economics? That's actually a really important question. And a lot of people kind of love them together. Experimental economics is really a toolbox that economists use to collect data. Right. So when we say someone is an experimentalist, we really mean that they use experiments to test out models and to test out hypotheses. Behavioral economics is a study of how individual behaviors impact rational decision making. Um, so you don't necessarily need to do an experiment to test behavior. You can do that using empirical data that already exists. I've done human capital projects where I used IRS data, for example, to see how likely someone is to move based on where their parents are from which is still a behavioral study, but we didn't use an experiment for that one. So which one are you more interested in? <laughs> I, I say that I'm a behavioral economist and I use experimental methods. And when I'm in the realm of behavioral economics, I would classify myself as applied micro problems. So I do a lot of education, labor, uh, things like that. How did you get interested in it? Originally, I thought I was into environmental economics. Uh, my master's degree is actually in resource and applied economics. I did that at the University of Alaska. And I knew that experiments seemed kind of interesting to me. And what really pushed me over the edge is Kerry Deck, who used to work here. Um, he was a visiting chair at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And so while I was up there, Kerry and I got to meet. I also got to meet a few other prominent uh, behavioral economists that used experiments. And they kind of nudge me over the edge to say, you know, if these are the problems that you're interested in looking at, then maybe you should consider doing experimental methods and go to university that would be able to foster that. So um, you got your master's degree from the University of Alaska? Yep. Fairbanks? Yes. And in economics? Yeah, uh, resource and applied economics. Very similar to a general econ master's. Um, the difference was we focused on applied issues. A lot of them were specialized to Alaska. So I got to do a really cool project where I tested how much Alaskans were willing to pay for reindeer meat from Alaska. And it was kind of my first introduction to seeing the economics of identity and how much someone's identity could actually impact their decision-making process when they're spending real money. And from that study, um, we're submitting to a journal soon, but kind of a preview. Um, that study, we actually found there was over a $3 per pound premium for Alaskans to buy meat from Alaska. 
Because of their identity as Alaskans. Exactly, um, because their only other option for reindeer is obviously Canada, just based on geography. Um, but they're willing to pay up to $3 extra just so they can be supporting the Alaskan economy versus importing it from Canada. How did you figure that out? So we did something called an adaptive choice-based conjoint survey, uh, which is really just a fancy way of saying it was, a, it was a smart survey. We figure out what people's baseline preferences are. We kind of ask them, hey, if you got to pick any type of reindeer meat, organic, not organic, what cut, how lean, where it's sourced from, what would you choose? And then we use that information and we start offering them different baskets, different combinations of attributes. And we start putting price tags on them to see which ones that they would be willing to spend money on. And from that, we can use this kind of updating model and start to figure out what are the cutoff points for individual people for how much they're willing to pay for each different attribute. So is that using part of revealed preferences? Concepts? Yeah, so it's a different approach to revealed preferences. Um, we're using something called Bayesian updating. And so through the process, we find out not just how much people are willing to pay for certain goods, but we're also finding out what things people are not willing to buy at all. So throughout the process, we found that a lot of Alaskans, they prefer organic meat. Um, a lot of Alaskans would never buy something that was not organic certified, which is a really interesting problem because Alaska doesn't have a processing center that's organic certified by the USDA. So these are a lot of tools that have been used in marketing a lot, and now they're kind of making their way into mainstream economics finally. I'm curious, because um, I'm familiar with its use in, in uh, marketing, how would an, an economist approach that kind of a question differently than, say, a, a marketing person? So I think one of the biggest things that is different is the way we kind of model the overall problem. So the first run when I did that project in Alaska, um, we did it as a hypothetical survey. Um, and we sent it out to 100 plus Alaskans in the Fairbanks area, which doesn't sound like a lot, but in Fairbanks, Alaska, that's a lot of people <laughs> to get responses from. <laughs> so we, we set that as kind of a baseline. And then what we do next is now we're gonna set up an experiment where people earn a certain amount of money, and then they spend that money in a virtual grocery store. So not only do we have this baseline where people got to do, take the smart survey, but now we're going to take people and we're going to actually throw them into a virtual grocery store with money they had to earn from us and see what their actual willingness to pay is with money that they earned. And that's kind of the big jump that we make from a traditional marketing study to an economic study where now we're actually looking at how people are allocating their resources. So how did they earn the money from you all? So there's a series of kind of standard economic games that they can play where they might have to solve a certain number of problems. They might have to count zeros and ones in a table. Um, they might have to do and make investment decisions where they're playing in a simulated market and there's buyers and there's sellers. And we start up everyone with five or $10 and they go in and they, they have to bid on certain items and they can use those as assets and kind of sell them in the experimental marketplace. So it mimics what happens actually in, real, in the real life market. Interesting. So were there differences in your findings between the hypothetical group and the group that had to spend money they earned? Yeah, so I think this is kind of a general thing where people will always overstate in the hypothetical realm. So in ours, we just find that people are willing to spend less money in reality. But even when we put people through this earned money type setup, they're still spending over $3 a pound. Whereas in the hypothetical, they're spending maybe like three sixty, but there's still a significant amount of money per pound for a reindeer product, especially when you consider that a lot of common meats that someone would buy, say, in Arkansas, a lot of them aren't even priced at over 4 or $5 a pound at the base level. We're adding on top of that. 
Yeah, that is remarkable. I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. <laughs> Did you look at people that were also not from Alaska? Yeah, so it's hard to find non-Alaskans in Alaska. In Northwest Arkansas, if you want to run a study like this, it's really easy. A lot of people aren't from here. Right. Um, you have a huge student population from Texas. You have a lot of executives working for these massive companies that are coming from all over the world. But in Alaska, most people are Alaskan. But in the project, we did control for how long someone had been in Alaska. Um, and most of those are going to come from students who came from the Pacific Northwest and came up to Alaska for college or military members. There's a base in Fairbanks that I was stationed at. Because you were in the military. Yeah, well, I was in the Army for five years, and that's, actually, that's how I ended up in Alaska. But um, a lot of the military members were only there for a couple of years. So we're able to control for how long someone's been in Alaska to kind of get an index of how Alaskan they really are. And was that significant? It was, it was moderately significant. It wasn't extremely significant. There was a break point. If someone had been in Alaska for at least four years, it was, much, it was very significant. Um, using it as kind of this continuous variable wasn't very significant, but if we broke it at four years and we say, hey, someone who's been in Alaska for more than four years are, is Alaskan at their identity, then we get significance. Interesting. So uh, I can see how that kind of uh, study could be quite helpful for companies when they're trying to figure out how to price products and mm -hmm. so forth. A lot of times economists use analytical models to create hypotheses, right? Kind of. So in experimental, we stick very close to the scientific method. Right? In order for an experiment to be valid, um, you, you don't want to do what's called data mining, right? You don't want to just sift through the data and find a hypothesis in the data because that, that's very dangerous. Because um, you can have randomness that you find. Right? right, and there's a lot of confirmation bias that comes up there. Our typical method is to, we come up with a hypothesis, we build the model that we think is gonna work, and then we build the experiment around that model. So that way we're only varying one or two things at a time, and we can actually test the specific variables in the model to see how they work out. And that's one of the problems with data science today. People are using, quote, big data mm -hmm. and data science, and they're running and looking for correlations. And yeah. you can find correlations that are not really, there's no causation. Right, and that's, I think that's one of the main benefits of experimental economics, is that we can control what we are varying. Right? When I go into the lab, everyone's doing the exact same thing except for one thing is different, or two things are different, and I can, I can observe just those differences and see how different, group, different randomly formed groups behave when there's only one thing different between them. So I know that um, experimental economics and behavioral economics, I know they're different, you explained that. But they're still relatively new compared to the history of economics, at least from what I'm aware of. Yes, so it takes, I think this is true for all academic disciplines, it takes time for the new idea to become the mainstream or to even be accepted. Experimental economics had issues in the beginning where people were questioning the power because the sample sizes were small, right? When you're so used to having a field and they're taking federal level data or international data with hundreds and thousands of observations. And now I'm saying that I have a significant result and I ran it with only a couple hundred people in the lab. At first there was a lot of skepticism with that. I think as the methods become more refined, people become more accepting. And now we're seeing where before experimental methods were really for microeconomists. Now we're seeing in macroeconomics that behavioral and experimental methods are starting to leak their way into that as well. So 
do you feel like economic theory is advancing because of this? I think economic theory is becoming more nuanced because of this. We originally started off with this idea of the principal agent. We can use this one person to represent the economy. Mm -hmm. And no one really questioned it for a while. And now people are starting to question, is like, is this really realistic? And when you do more behavioral models and when you start using experimental methods to test these behavioral models, now you can start kind of teasing out the differences between people. You can say, okay, there's different types of people, there's different educational levels, there's different socioeconomic backgrounds. Different probability distribution. Exactly. I think we're starting to refine a lot of things. Well, I remember when I was in graduate school, I think it was about 30 years ago that I took a class in graduate school in economics, an advanced micro class. And I remember the principal agent model. And the question is, what's the optimal incentive for the agent and the model that they came up with was quite general, you know, but it showed that um, because you can't observe the effort of the agent, you should have the optimal policy involved, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, a combination of a salary and a commission kind of, right, where yeah. they're exposed to the risk yes. under a probabilistic uh, outcome. So in other words, the agent, if the agent tries hard, the agent will increase the probability of favorable states of nature, but there's still uncertainty. Right. And I think that's really relevant to today's labor market. A lot of people want salaried positions because yeah. there's a lot of security behind a salaried position. Um, but the firm knows that when they incentivize the employee, the employee is going to work harder. If your paycheck is based on your performance, then you're going to optimize your performance on an individual level. I think we're starting to realize that different people react differently to those incentive structures. Yeah, and I remember even back then, 30 years ago, there were some papers starting to come out showing that if you varied some of the uh, assumptions. One paper I remember seeing said, suppose the agent can invest in a way increases the probability of favorable states of nature. An example would be advertising. Right. Then the general solution to the principal agent problem doesn't hold if you have a probability distribution that isn't symmetrical. Mm -hmm. Things like that that are <laughs> kind of odd. Yeah, so there's, there's a joke that goes around um, and it's basically like there's an economist, a physicist, and a mathematician on Strand on Desert Island and they're trying to figure out what to do, and the physicist comes up with some fancy physics solution for how to create fire. The mathematician is trying to work out angles and everything else, and the economist is like, why don't we just assume we have a boat? <laughs> assume we have a boat. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, I think economists have gotten, we've taken a lot of heat um, in the past decades for over-assuming to simplify our models, um, and now with the kind of rise of behavioral and experimental methods and popularity, now we don't need to rely on those assumptions so much anymore. Yeah. Now we can say, well, let's get some data for this and let's actually figure out what's going on in the, on a more idiosyncratic or even a, a group level. What made you decide to go into the PhD program? Originally, I did not think I was going to get a PhD. Um, the funny story is when I was graduating from undergrad, I went to Manhattan College in New York City and I was an economics major and I actually had a job offer in Europe where they were going to fund my master's degree, which would eventually lead to a PhD. And I kind of had a moment where I freaked out 
and said I wasn't ready to sit behind a desk. And I couldn't think of myself having a real job, and that's why I decided to enlist in the Army. Um, and then after a while in the Army, I got hurt pretty bad, and I couldn't go in the field anymore. So I decided to do my Master's, and I was like, okay, I'll do the Master's. I'll get a good job out of this, and then I'll move on. And I applied for a couple jobs. I did get a couple job offers. And really, it was my master's thesis advisor. We were doing my thesis together, and he said, he's like, you know, you can do a PhD, and you can keep doing work like this. For me, I'm a first-gen college student from Brooklyn, so none of my family had gone to college before me. I had no clue what I was doing when I went to undergrad, let alone doing my master's. Everything for me was just kind of a, this sounds like a good idea. Let's try this out. Um, I like to say I've been, I've been kind of falling forward. And so I didn't believe him at first. I didn't think, I was like, no, I'm not the kind of person that does a PhD. When I met Kerry Deck, he had a conversation with me. He talked about, you know, the PhD is really what you make of it. If you're interested in studying people, then that's the way to do it. Um, and so I, I told my advisor, I'll at least apply for five PhD programs and I'll apply for five jobs. And I got into three PhD programs. I got two job offers. And I just kind of sat down one day and I said, you know what, I am good at this research thing. Let me see if I can take it a little bit further. Um, and I think the big thing that really pushed me over the edge was realizing that I'd be able to help people on a more general scale if I do the PhD. Um, because I can do meaningful research that'll actually help people in addition to getting my chance in the classroom. And here at the Walton College, I get the opportunity to teach hundreds of students every semester. So I get to directly impact people, both on a research and on a teaching level. Well, that's, that's neat. It really goes along with the vision of the Walton College, because the vision of the Walton College is to be thought leaders and catalysts for transforming lives. And it sounds like both of those really appealed to you. One of the great things about the economics department here is that it's a relatively small department given the size of our university, but we're, we have a very, very strong research faculty, which means that I get to impact change on a much more direct level, and I get a lot more control over what kind of projects I'm interested in. Whereas I have some friends who went to larger departments, and they kind of just get buried in the department hierarchy, and they end up having to hop onto a project with their advisor, hop on a project with someone else in their committee. I've been able to get support to actually do things that are directly impacting the Arkansas community and are actually leading to my research agenda as well. And um, so what are some of the current things that you're working on? Yeah, so my biggest project that I'm working on, and this is actually the project proposal that I submitted to George Mason for a Humane Studies Fellowship. Um, I recently piloted a free college mentorship program for Arkansas high school students. Uh, so I'm running it through the ACT Academy on campus. And the way it works is the students come here for the ACT Academy prep course. They're here for a week. And while they're here, they're matched with a mentor. They live with the mentor for the week in the dorms. And the mentor is kind of there to answer questions, kind of do a little community group building, um, kind of raise the spree de corps, if you will, of their group. And then after the ACT Academy is over and they go back to their hometown, wherever in the state they're from, the mentors then work for me for the entire fall semester, helping these kids get ready for college. So that can involve things like helping them fill out the FAFSA, helping them apply for different colleges, helping them make a college list because the kids that we're targeting, while we do have a pretty balanced representation of students, upper class, lower class, white, black, Hispanic, the kids that really need the help are the first gen students and the kids coming from the lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And so a lot of these kids, they don't have anyone in their network that's gone to college. They don't have any parents that have gone to college. So that's where the mentor steps in. 
so while many people may look at that project and say, okay, that sounds really nice, you're doing a good thing for the community, how's that economics? Um, while they're here, I actually take them down to our behavioral lab, I explain all about the economic field and what we do here at Walton, and they go through a bunch of different surveys and some of the experimental games I mentioned to you before, and we learn um, empirically what kind of risk preferences these kids have, what kind of time preferences these kids have, and then throughout the experiment, we are randomizing whether or not their mentor is someone of their own racial and ethnic background, and we're also randomizing whether or not the students will get the same general college information that everyone else gets, or if they're gonna get more specialized information that targets their specific backgrounds. And through this, we can learn about how students are reacting to information. There's this assumption that if the information is freely available, people will be able to freely receive it. Uh, my hypothesis, though, is that when you have, for example, a lower-income black male student from a town where no one goes to college, and he gets a brochure from the University of Arkansas main campus, he's going to have a hard time identifying with the information in the brochure, so he's not going to internalize it. However, if that information is more specialized to him, if the person handing him the information is someone from his community, or someone that at least looks like him or talks like him, and if the information talks about scholarships like NAACP scholarships, for example, the Dr. Martin Luther King Foundation, if it talks about the community up here that understands his background, then he's going to be more likely to accept that information and actually try to enroll in the University of Arkansas versus just saying, you know, that's not for me. This is for someone that has more money or comes from a college family. So this is similar to your identity research on the reindeer meat yes. in some ways. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the common theme through all my research is measuring how much someone's identity is impacting the decision making. Just now we're starting to get into how someone is going to invest in their own human capital based on their identity. Have you, do you have any findings yet or are you still in the midst of it? So I just finished a pilot. The pilot we had 77 students, which was pretty good for a first run, and had 17 mentors working for me who were all fantastic. We found especially for biracial students that they have the, the strongest identity pull. Um, it's most important to biracial students that they have someone that they can identify with on a cultural level. And me, myself, I grew up in a you know, mixed ethnicity, mixed race family. I can understand how important that's going to be because when I was growing up, I was, I was too black to be white, but I was trying to get an education. I was kind of a nerd. I read a lot. And so ethnolinguistically, I didn't fit in with my neighborhood. And so I had this consistent identity crisis growing up. Um, and it wasn't until later in life when I started getting mentors that kind of understood what I went through that I started realizing that I could, you know, go on this path and it's okay if I don't fit in with everybody. Um, so we did find strong um, significance for biracial students. And I also found that for minority students, on average, the minority students that got information that was relevant to them did have higher aspirations as far as where they applied to school. But even more curiously, students that were minorities their parents ended up having a higher belief in the student's ability to go to a high-ranking school if the student had a mentor of the same race as the student. And so this was something that I didn't expect to happen. And so when I adjust the study for the full run of the field experiment, I'll, I'll pay more attention to. But when we kind of brainstormed it, we realized, well, the mentors are going out and picking up the students and their hometown, or the parents are dropping them off on campus, depending where, how close they are to campus. And the parents are meeting the mentors, right? They're meeting the mentors, they're shaking their hands, they're seeing who the child's mentor is. And I realized, like, a lot of these parents didn't go to college 
and they have a lot of concerns about their student going to college, especially when you have an institution where if I'm black, my son or daughter is black, and they're going to a school that's only 4% black, I might be concerned about them being able to fit in culturally. But if I meet a mentor from that school and say, okay, there's a mentor that looks like my son or daughter, has the same background from the same area, and they're doing fine, it made the parents feel a lot more confident in the student's ability to succeed. What course do you teach here in the Walton College? This year I'm teaching principles of microeconomics. Um, last year I talked basic economics, and now I'm teaching principles of micro. Um, but I put my own spin on it. And so in addition to teaching all the core stuff that's in the course catalog, we also learn about the economics of different people. Um, so what I do is I pull from the different cultures that exist in the classroom organically. And we talk about issues such as the economics of vices. We talk about the economics of discrimination. We talk about economic growth in urban communities and in rural communities. And I try to make it more relevant, not just to the students in the classroom, but also help them branch out to learn about people that they might not encounter in the University of Arkansas, but they definitely want to encounter out in the workforce. Um, so it's been a lot of fun, though. It's, it's been really interesting to engage with the, with the students here. Well, Nathaniel, thank you so much for taking time to visit with me about your research and your program. No problem. I'm really glad to, to come and talk to you. It's really good to get a chance to talk about what I'm doing outside of the kind of the walls of Walton. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Be Epic podcast from the Walton College. You can find us on Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or look for us wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. You can find current and past episodes by searching Be Epic Podcast, one word, that's B-E-E-P-I-C Podcast, and now Be Epic. Be Epic.